We're going to speak this morning, brothers and sisters, about covenant. That's what is our, our, our topic for this morning, will be on the topic of covenant. But I would like to begin by putting a couple of statements before you. And when I give you these statements, what I would like for you to do is I want for you to be thinking about both of these statements and then and thinking if both of them can live together, if both of them can live together in harmony, if they are congruent, if they can at some way and somehow both be true at the same exact time, all right? So that makes sense to you. So the first statement that I wanted to put forward to you for your consideration is this, and this is on your outline and your note sheet there. It says, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we could take it a little bit further even and add the other two pillars of the Reformation to that, that we are, so that at that point it would be, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. In other words, there is no salvation apart from Christ apart from being saved by grace as evidenced by having faith in Christ, if you are to be in heaven, if you are to have eternal life, if you are to be justified and declared righteous and therefore have salvation, it is all by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ Jesus alone. We are saved by a covenant of grace. We didn't do anything to earn our salvation, in other words. So that's statement one. Okay, so be thinking about statement one. Would you agree with it? You know, be, be thinking about the truthfulness of it. And remember, I'm wanting you to consider this statement, which I just put forth, if that statement can be somehow in line and in cooperation with or, or congruent with this next statement that I'm going to put forth here in just a moment. Or are these two statements contradictory? So you're comparing. You want to see if these two things can live together as it were. Statement two, then. We are saved by works. We are saved by works. God has a holy and a righteous standard that must be met if anyone is to be in his heaven. Now, are those statements congruent? Can those statements live together, or can those, are those statements, in fact, enemies? I would submit to you, friends, that those statements, in fact, are congruent, that they are not contradictory at all that these two statements can live side by side in perfect harmony. Even more than that, that these two statements must be married, and if they are not, then no one will have salvation at all. No one will be saved if both of these statements aren't true. Now, at this point, maybe you're, you're a little squirmy, you're a little nervous, wondering if I'm being faithful to the Word. And I, I would appreciate that if that's the case. I, I want... For you to be discerning, we need to be discerning. The prophet Hosea in chapter 4, I believe, he says that he quotes the Lord who says that my people perished for a lack of knowledge. And so I certainly want you all to have knowledge. I want you all to be discerning. And so that's why I put these statements forward here at the beginning of the message this morning. And, and that's why I want you to think about them. And I even and I put them on your outline for you because I want for us to grow in our knowledge. So let's look back at those statements which are on your notes. Statement one, again, is we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Statement two is we are saved by works. Now notice, I didn't say that you were saved by your works. That's an important distinction. I didn't say that we are saved by our works. If I said that, 
we would, I'd be wrong. It would be heretical. There's no way that we can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and then at the same time have to depend upon our own works to be saved. That's a contradiction, and frankly, it's foolishness. You can't even add just a little bit of your works to grace. If you do that, you totally would eliminate grace. you, You disqualify it. You ruin it if you try to add your own works to it. If you we're counting on 99.9% God's grace and then 0.1% your works, that would be to totally do away with grace. That is what the, the Bible teaches. And neither do we start by grace and then finish by our works. We don't, we don't depend upon the grace of God at first and then keep ourselves saved by these good works. That's not true at all. The very moment that the Spirit of God indwells us, and seals us, and because of that you are trusting in Christ for faith, at that very moment, you are justified in the sight of God. You're declared righteous because Jesus' righteousness is accredited to you, and your justification doesn't change at all. It doesn't wax or wane, it doesn't increase or decrease, not once from the moment that you experience salvation. The person who is saved for only, let's say, five minutes, and has, they have no good works then to show or to evidence their salvation other than the profession of faith that they just made is just as justified as the senior saint who strived with God for 60 years and has pursued good works and has pursued holiness. They're, the justification in that believer who's only been saved for five minutes, the justification in the person who's been saved for 60 years and has done many good works, is exactly the same no different between them. Their sanctification is, of course, different, but their, their, their practical holiness is, of course, different, but their justification, their standard with God, is exactly the same. And the reason that is that the case is because our good works do not count for our salvation. They do not count for our justification. When it comes to our justification, brothers and sisters, let us reject in every sense, in every circumstance, our work and our merit. Let us, let us trample them underfoot. Let us remember that as far as we know, we are the chief of sinners, and we are in desperate need of God's grace and His mercies in our life. But brothers and sisters, we are saved by works. Not our works, but by the works of our Lord Jesus Christ by his active obedience to the law of God, and then by his passive obedience in his death and his suffering in our place, in our stead. And everything about your salvation, everything about my salvation, hinges on that fact, who Christ is and what he's done. I wonder if you remember in Matthew chapter 5, that's, that's the chapter in which the Sermon on the Mount begins. And he, he goes through the law of God in a number of different ways, and he shows in that sermon the, how the law really has root deeper down in the hearts of people. And they, it displays itself in other ways that don't follow exactly the, the, the letter of the law, but it's the heart behind the law. And so in that chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus sets forth the standard of lawfulness that God has. He says there that you must therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is is perfect. Righteousness is set upon a lawful standard. 
the standard itself is set forth in a covenant, as we'll see, a covenant of works, and the personification of that standard happens to be God himself. Remember, God says, Be holy, for I am holy. And therefore, only Jesus Christ, the impeccable, sin-free, that means, God-man, can intercede for us. Only Christ is our mediator, like Pastor Nick preached on last week. Jesus is the greater priest. You remember that, I trust. Next week, we'll consider that Jesus is the greater prophet, and then, or excuse me, the greater sacrifice. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll come together and we'll hear how Jesus is the greater prophet. But this morning, we are considering the context of those other three sermons. In other words, Jesus is a priest, Jesus is a sacrifice, Jesus is a prophet, all within this context of him being the mediator of a better covenant. All of those things, priest, prophet, sacrifice, they exist within this covenant. Jesus himself fulfills the covenant of works, we'll see, and then he is the mediator of a better covenant, a covenant of grace. He mediates it. He goes in between God and man, and as, as the God-man, and then he enacts the term of the covenant. He fulfills it. He ratifies it in his blood. He, he notarizes it. And this is a topic that is of great importance for us, beloved. And it is important that we understand this idea of a better covenant, the new covenant, which is, which is this covenant that Jesus mediates. And my hope this morning is that you will delight in God and understand as, uh, what the new covenant is and, and all the blessing that is contained therein for us. And I need to, to mention an aside here before we start. Because of the nature of this topic that we have for us this morning, the sermon is going to be doctrinal. It's going to be theological. And I hope that, that me saying that doesn't turn you off. It doesn't make you want to just oh, kind of shut down and daydream about something else. I hope that when I say that this sermon is going to be theological, that that's something that you will appreciate because I, I need for you to understand that everyone is a theologian. Every single person that's ever existed is a theologian. Let me, let me give you an example. An atheist is a theologian. The word atheist means one who doesn't believe in God. You have the prefix a and then theist, which means believe in God. So put it together, you know, one who doesn't believe in God. Now, that's a theological statement, isn't it? It is a person who has considered whatever facts they have, and they come to the conclusion that there is no God. It's a, it's a bad theological statement. It's a, a foolish theological statement, Psalm 14.1 would say, but it's a theological statement. And everyone, then, is a theologian. It's not just the elders here at the church. It's not just myself and Sean and Clint and Nick and Ross. It's not just seminary professors. It's not just you know, people who really care about that sort of thing. It's everyone. Everyone is a theologian. And so when I say that we're going to look at something this morning that is theological and doctrinal, I hope that excites you. I hope that that, that makes you happy because it should. We are talking about God. We're talking about the one who saves you, who redeems you, who made you. It is, it is a blessing to be able to know him. That is why he gave us his word. He preserved it throughout all history that we might know him. And so studying theology, it's, it's a blessing for us. 
it's not just so that we'll have like some, some big, fat head filled with knowledge that we can impress our friends with. It's so that we can know God. It's so that we can know Him better. And that the more that we know God better, the more we might love Him. Because we know more of Him. And the more we know Him better, the more we might know His will. And then the more we know His will, the more we might be able to implement His will and desire His will. So it is good for us, brothers and sisters, to consider theology. Especially, that is, the theology contained here in God's Word. So, let's read God's Word together. If you haven't already, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. So please open up your Bible to there. This letter has a lot to say on the topic of covenant. We're not going to have enough time to say everything that I would hope to be able to say. I tried to ask Anna if we could have three hours for a sermon. She wasn't sure that was a good idea. So I'll try to go as quick as we can here with this. But let's, um, well, we're going to begin at verse 6 in chapter 8, and we'll finish up the chapter from verse 6. And after we read it, we'll ask the Lord to, to bless our time in His Word as well, too. So the Word of the Lord, or the reading of God's Word, in Hebrews 8, beginning at verse 6. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For, it is the first, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and is growing old is ready to vanish away. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, sufficient word. May he grant us understanding and apply it on our hearts. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for preserving your word in it, which you reveal the new covenant, this better covenant. And we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts and our minds that we might see you and know you and love you. Lord, make less of me and make more of you, all for Christ's glory's sake. Amen. Well, we, we see right away, I think, that he is comparing a few things in this text, comparing some specific elements. He mentions three things in verse 6, actually. Christ has a, a ministry that is more excellent than the old. Pastor Nick talked about Christ's priestly ministry last week, the, the covenant he mediates is better, and then also this covenant is enacted on better promises. There's a lot of overlap in these topics. I was, I was tempted actually to begin, or I had a desire to begin this morning in Hebrews chapter 7, because Hebrews chapter 7 it is right on the heels of the verse that Pastor Nick preached on last week. And in Hebrews 7.22, it takes this information that we received about Christ, how he was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I, I trust you remember that. 
Uh, if you were here, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go listen to that sermon on our website. But it builds off of that reality that Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then it says in verse 22 in chapter 7 that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And then in the following verses, after 22, it explains why, in fact, Jesus is a guarantor of a better covenant. And so he turns his attention back to the former priests. And there he says that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. So there had to be a new priest all the time. So a priest would die, then a new priest would replace replace him. But then it says of Jesus, but he, meaning Jesus, his priesthood he holds, or he holds his priesthood permanently. Jesus doesn't die. Jesus is living right now. He's alive at the right hand of the Father, living to make intercession for us. And that's, in fact, what this verse goes on to continue to say. It says, consequently, because he lives forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So, so there's, no, there's no worry about it in the plan of God for Jesus' ability to save us. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he lives to make intercession for us. He, he doesn't die. He's a better priest. In other words, everyone in this covenant that we read about here in in Hebrews chapter 8, Jesus is living to keep you saved. He's living to defend you and to, and to, to, to declare his righteous works over you when the accuser comes against us. So better ministry, better covenant, better promises. And then his focus turns to be specifically on the covenant in question in our text. And that's verses 7 through 13. And really, what we're seeing here is verses 7 to 13, they're bookends. They are commentary on the covenant that's in 8 to 12. 8 to 12 is just a, is a straight, nearly, I should say, a straight quotation of Jeremiah 31 and his prophecy on the new covenant. But verses 7 and verses 13 offer commentary on that new covenant. Now, again, we don't need to guess at what covenant he's referring to here. It's the new covenant. That's what Jeremiah prophesied about. That's what we read of here in verse 8. You may also have noticed that he calls it the second covenant in in verse 7, I mean. So we have the new covenant or the second covenant in view. And those are, again, these are also contrasting terms, right? If, If something is new, it's comparing to something that is old. If something is second, it's comparing to something that is first. So he's contrasting covenants. And so in order for us to know this new covenant, this, what he calls the second covenant, it's going to be helpful to, for us to understand two things. One, what is a covenant exactly? And then two, what is this covenant and other covenants that he's comparing it to? So firstly, there on your outline, you'll see, what is a covenant? If you were to ask my boys, my kids, my boys especially, would be able to answer this, um, what a covenant is, they'd give the Baptist catechism answer which is a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. Okay? The Baptist Children's Catechism says a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. And that's not a bad answer, but we can say more about a covenant. What we see about covenants is that they are legal agreements that are inherently relational. And even the Children's Catechism alludes to that when it says it's an agreement between two persons, right? If you have two persons, that's a, that's a relationship. 
The very nature of a covenant is relational. Let me give you some definitions of a covenant from some reputable pastors and teachers. You don't have to write these down. I'm just, they're cut, they might be some kind of long. One of them is at least, but I'm just giving this to you so you have a more full understanding of what a covenant is. So first, we have from Fred Malone. He writes, a covenant is a solemn promise or oath of God to man, each covenant's content being determined by revelation concerning that covenant. O. Palmer Robertson, in his book on the covenants, he says that the closeness of relationships between oath and covenant emphasis, that a covenant in its very essence is a bond, something that brings people together. By the covenant, persons become committed to each other. Peter Gentry, a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he says that the heart of the covenant then is a relationship between parties characterized by faithfulness, loyalty, and love. And then John Owen, the Puritan, he writes, A covenant properly is a compact or agreement on certain terms, mutually stipulated by two or more parties. As promise are the foundation and rise of it, as it is between God and man, so it comprises also of precepts or laws of obedience, which are prescribed to man on his part to be observed. So taking all of that, what we see is that covenants are relational loving, legal compacts, or oaths. And you know, some people are, in fact, opposed to relationships being legal covenants. I've heard, I've read theologians, pastors, say that we can't call these loving covenants legal. Because if you do, they'll teach, they'll say that, you know, you just remove the love from it, actually. That you can't have both law and love together. They'll say that in order for a covenant to be truly loving, it needs to be void from any law, from any sort of legal requirement. There doesn't need to be anything binding or restricting it when love is, in fact, the bond. But think about it, though. What is the the highest form of an earthly relationship between a man and a woman? The marriage covenant. And so I think that we would be right to say that there are legal elements or components in covenants. In fact, There is no higher form of love than that which is based on a covenantal commitment. Imagine the boyfriend or the girlfriend who says to themselves that they're going to live together, they're going to sleep together outside of the covenant of marriage, you know, because they just love each other. No, you don't love each other. You don't love one another unless you're willing to be in a committed union for life. I give you my word. No matter how I feel two years from now, no matter how you change, I give you my word. I will be faithful. That's love. That's a covenant. It's through thick and thin, through death, whatever, health and sickness. In fact, death is the one thing that could break that covenant. But in fact, you know, the, the highest earthly covenant, the marriage covenant, is the way it is because it's based on the model of covenantal relationship relationship that God enters into with us. So let's consider the biblical covenants. We don't have enough time to give proper focus to all of these covenants. We're going to try to go through them kind of fast. This will be a brief survey of the covenants. It's going to be a lot of information, so hopefully the outline will help you a little bit. The first covenant that we see in Scripture is, like all covenants, a legal and loving relational agreement, and it comes to us in the second chapter of the Bible. So if you can be quick, we could go look there. It's Genesis chapter 2. This is the only one that I'll have you turn to, especially for time's sake. 
verses 15 to 17 in chapter 2. Um, I trust you'll be familiar with these words, actually. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now you probably noticed the word covenant isn't present in the text. I did not say the word covenant there whatsoever, but I would submit to you that the covenantal language is there. It's relational. We have God and Adam in view. The terms of the covenant are right there in verse 16. It says, You may surely eat of every tree that is in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat of that. And the consequence from the covenant is there as well too. It says, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so to deny that there is a covenant here would be to commit the word concept fallacy. Just because the, the word isn't there doesn't mean the concept isn't there. It certainly is. And we, have, we could remove all doubt, mind you, by looking to the prophet Hosea, who writes in chapter 6, he, he writes in his prophetic letter, that he writes in the context of Israel's disobedience, their unfaithfulness. And so he writes there at that point, he says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So Hosea, the prophet of God, the inspired prophet of God, notes that there's a covenant here in the garden. And Adam, what did he do? He broke it. So Adam in the garden was unfaithful. The covenant has gone by many names throughout history. This specific covenant, like, it, like I said, it doesn't say specific the word covenant there, but it's obviously there. And so people throughout history have called it the Adamic covenant. They've called it the creation covenant. They've called it the garden covenant. They've called it the covenant of life. It goes by all those different names if you come across those names in your study. Theologically speaking, though, we identify this initial covenant as the covenant of works. The not a covenant of works, but the covenant of works. Meaning that with this covenant, there was a work that could be done which would merit eternal life, which would earn it. Remember, this was the re- that was the reward that Adam was promised if he didn't transgress the law. He would be able to remain in the garden and eat of the tree of, the knowledge, or the tree of life, all that he desired. But of course, Adam was not faithful. He broke the covenant, and his act of unfaithfulness plunged himself, Eve, and all of mankind, all his posterity, into sin. We are born in sin because of Adam's transgression here in the garden. By saying that that this is the covenant of works, I'm not trying to say there's no grace in it. Don't don't hear me say that. It was God's goodness and graciousness that prompted God into such a unique relationship with his creation. He He didn't do this with the animals. He didn't go up to the lion and say, here's a covenant we have. He entered into this relationship with mankind, with Adam. But at its core, it's a works-based covenant. And we can sum it up in four short words. Four short words will sum up what the covenant of works is. It is do this and live. Do this and live. If Adam had done what he was intended to do um, when God gave him instruction in the garden, if he had resisted the offer from Eve and he said no to her, there would be no sin. There would be no death. It was do this and live. But the covenant was broken. So it is works-based. 
but it's given in grace, and there are certain types and shadows that would point to and anticipate Christ in the new covenant. The garden was a type of temple in which God was to be worshipped and Adam was to be the mediator. He was instructed by God to keep it, to, to, to keep it pure, to keep it holy. This is why the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the second Adam in Romans 5. You ever wonder why he calls him that there? It's the only time in Scripture where we hear that. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the second Adam because it's, this garden is pointing forward to Christ. Christ is even greater, though, because not only does he mediate, but we also see that he is referred to as the tabernacle, the temple. Both of those things point to him. You had to go to the temple to worship God in the Old Testament. But now here in the, in the New Testament era, if you want to worship God, you go to God in Christ and through Christ. In the Garden Covenant, man was told to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they did eat from this tree, that they would experience death. The Apostle Paul picks up on this, and he says in Galatians 3, he says that, that Jesus became a curse for us because everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And, you know, the tree, you know, he's, he's drawing this parallel here that the tree was a wooden cross. But we see this then in the New Covenant that now as Christians, whereas in the garden Adam couldn't eat from the tree, we go eat from the tree. Christ is the fruit on the tree that we eat from. Every time we commemorate the Lord's Supper, you know, we have the, the bread which represents his body, the, the, the fruit of the vine which represents his blood. We do that in every Lord's Supper. It's the reversal of the curse that we are remembering and renewing every time we take the Lord's Supper. And remember, what does Jesus say when he institutes the Lord's Supper with his disciples? When he's up there in the upper room discourse before he's going to be betrayed, he says, this is the covenant of my blood. This cup is the covenant. Is, is, this cup is the covenant of my blood. So, again, the initial covenant is pointing us forward. It's anticipating the new covenant. It is the covenant of works, which sets forth the pattern based, or the pattern of works-based covenants, which is again, do this and live. So then they have the Noahic covenant, okay? A few chapters over, chapter 6 in Genesis. Again, it's a legal and relational agreement. God comes to Noah, it's gracious, but he also tells him, build an ark. It's do this and live. If Noah didn't build an ark, what would happen? He would have been swept away in the flood with everyone else. Um, he would die in judgment like the rest of mankind. Of course, you know, he does build the ark. His whole family is saved in that. His sons and their wives and his wife. And once again, this is anticipating the new covenant, brothers and sisters. It's a covenant of works, not the covenant of works, but it's a covenant of works, but it carries us along through redemptive history. It's absolutely filled with types and shadows that point forward to Christ and the new covenant. Noah and his family are saved. The rest are subject to the wrath of God. The New Testament is very clear. We're reminded that only one family, one people will be saved, and the rest subject to wrath. The church is referred to as, the, as a family. We're adopted in to God's family, and we are saved, while the rest are under God's wrath. There is only one way of salvation there in Noah's day, the ark, and all in it were spared. There's only one way of salvation for us. It's Christ, and all in Christ are spared the wrath of God. There's more we can say. Let's move on. We get to the Abrahamic covenant, which is now in Genesis chapter 12. It's actually carried over into three different chapters, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and then Genesis 17. And in these chapters, God promises, him a, promises Abraham a land, a people, and blessing. 
All of these are types and shadows of what is given in the new covenant. The promised land is the new heavens and the new earth. The, the people are the elect in Christ. The blessing is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places as it is in Christ Jesus. But in Genesis 17, we read terms of this covenant. And once again, it's do this and live. Abraham is instructed to circumcise all of his children, actually all of the males in his household. So he didn't have to be a, a child, actually. If you were to become a part of the household of Abraham, it didn't matter your age, you would have to be circumcised. And if they did not, they would be cut off. No pun intended. It was, it was gracious of God Almighty to have entered into the covenant with Abraham. But the command to circumcise or be forsaken shows it was once again a covenant of works. It, it certainly anticipated, it pointed us forward to the, to the new covenant. There are some gracious elements in it. Types and shadows are buried in it. And we're carried along some more through it until we get to what's called the Mosaic Covenant. And that is in Exodus that we read about that. And we can even tell that the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of works kind of right off from the start because we see that Moses is instructed to continue on with this circumcision, the sign, the seal of the Abrahamic Covenant. And once again, this is in itself a covenant of works. Again, not the covenant of works. The covenant of works was there in the garden. This is a covenant of works. But it stands in a unique place in comparison to the other covenants. And this covenant that we are given, we are, it is in this covenant that we are given some insight as to what was really behind that garden covenant, that, guard, that covenant made in Eden. It is in this covenant that we get the moral law, the Ten Commandments. They, we learn in Scripture, are the standard of holiness and righteousness. They reveal to us what God is like and, and the way it is in which God would like for us to live. We can even break it down into two tables. Right? The first four commandments instruct us on how we're to love God. The second six commandments instruct us on how we're to love other people. Of course, the Mosaic Covenant had more than just the moral law. It contained all of those ceremonial, all of those judicial laws as well, hundreds of other laws. And all of it was once again to, to say this, do this and live. But the significance of this covenant is that it reveals the moral law. That is why in the New Testament, when you read the New Testament, you see them referring back to this old covenant. You see them referring back to Moses quite often, the, the, the authors of the New Testament. And because, the reason for that is because the law was revealed through Moses. When the, when the New Testament comments on the old or the old covenant, when Jeremiah mentions an old covenant, a covenant made with the fathers, it's primarily this Mosaic covenant that is in view. And for these reasons, theologically speaking, this covenant is known as a memorial or a renewal, or I prefer the term a republication of the or the covenant of works. It in and of itself is a covenant of works, but it is a republication of the covenant of works. It, that, that covenant in the garden. It reminds us of this covenant of works that it demands perfect righteousness and it tells us what that standard is. The Puritan John Owen said that the old covenant, in the perspective part of it, the essence of it, renewed the covenant of works. He said it revived the covenant of works. That, that's why we read so much about it in the New Testament. But all the other old covenants, they are rightly, or the other covenants are rightly called old covenants as well, and they're contrasted against this new covenant. 
theologically speaking. Why is that? It's because the moral law that was revealed in the Mosaic Covenant was in operation from the garden. It is the righteous standard that was behind the commandment to not eat from the tree. So the commandment to not eat from the tree, it's an example of the righteous standard. And then you get to Noah, and, and, and forthright, it, it's this righteous standard is carried throughout. I don't have enough time today, but I w- the next time you're reading through the Old Testament, through, especially from Genesis through the early chapters of Exodus, I would encourage you or challenge you to pay close attention to the sins that are committed from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Exodus chapter 20, right before the giving of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. You'll notice in that that every single commandment is broken by the people. Every single one of them. Commandment 1 through 10 is broken by the people. And that's before they was even given. And of course, God was not pleased with them for breaking it. So this moral law, it existed before it was even given. And plus, we know, we know that's true as well because of Revelation in the New Testament. The law existed before it was revealed. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 2 where he's speaking about Gentiles. He says that all who perish without the law will also die without the law. How can that be? They didn't receive the law on Mount Sinai. It's because all people apart from Christ are still in a covenant with God. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning, you're still in a covenant with God. Every, everyone is. And it's a covenant of works. Adam is your federal head in it. He's your representative. People apart from Christ are in a, are in a covenant of works with God. And that is why people will go to hell. Nobody is choosing to go to hell on their own power. Nobody, nobody does that. God sends people to hell because of the covenant that you're in, because you've broken the covenant just like your representative Adam has broken the covenant. The, the sins that we commit and the sin that Adam committed while he was our representative, they condemn us. And then Paul goes on to say in 2.15 to say that sometimes the Gentiles are obedient to the law. Outwardly. Not inwardly, but they're sometimes outwardly obedient to the law, nonetheless. And the reason he gives for this is because the work of the reason in Romans 2.15 he says the work of the law is written on their hearts. It's seared into their conscience. The reason being, it's the essential element from the covenant of work. To do this and live. That's why you don't have to be saved to know that stealing is wrong. If you're not even a Christian and, and somebody steals your wallet, you know that person is wrong. You just know because the, the work of the law is written on our hearts. And so that's why it's important to be in a covenant with Christ, where Christ represents us. Because we cannot pay the penalty of our sin ourselves and survive. Now, the Mosaic Covenant didn't lack grace and love just like all the other old covenants as well. It had those too. After all, it's given in the context of redeeming the people from Egypt. Remember, before God gives the law, he says, remember, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. It was the very kindness of God that prompted him to reveal the moral law at this point. He didn't have to do that. Remember, he doesn't, he doesn't give his moral law to other people groups. The Gentiles perish without the law. But he gives his law to this nation of Israel because of his covenant promise to Abraham. People before the law were, was given even perished without the law as well too. It's, in, it's inherent to us because we are made in the image of God. And that's why I would argue, friends, that our children are in a blessed position. 
Our, our Baptist children are in a blessed position. They get family worship. They get to come to church. They get to learn about God. They get to learn how to pray. They are in a favored position. They learn about the law of God and they hear the gospel. You know, those are things that pagan families don't get. Uh, unreligious, irreligious families won't have those things. But our children, unless they are trusting in Christ for their salvation, they are in the covenant of works. This is one of the main reasons I can't be a Presbyterian. I, I love my Presbyterian brothers and sisters. I would have no problem going side by side with Presbyterian, most Presbyterians and sharing the gospel. I have no problem with that. But a biblical theology of the covenant pre- prevents me from becoming a Presbyterian. They, they believe that the children of believing parents are also in the new covenant and not in the covenant of works. But remember we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 7 where it says Christ is the guarantor of a better covenant and that everyone in that covenant, Jesus lives to make intercession for them, that he, is, he, is, he, he lives and he, he lives to defend them and to keep them saved, in other words. Christ is able to save to the uttermost those in the new covenant. The children of believers are certainly blessed. They have more light even in the nation of Israel had in the old covenant, but they aren't in the new covenant unless they are believing. So I, I couldn't, you know, in good conscience, be a Presbyterian. So the Mosaic covenant, the primary old covenant, republished the covenant of works. It was given in grace anticipated the new covenant and was filled with shadows and types. So many we can mention, so many through the wilderness wandering that point to Christ and in the new covenant. Excuse me. Moses was a, was a prophet. That shadowed Christ's office of a, of a prophet. There's other covenants, two other covenants we can mention. We're going to skip them like we did the first service too. There's some theologians identify a Levitical covenant and that typifies or shadows Christ priestly office, and then the Davidic covenant, which would, of course, shadow Christ's kingship office. So we'll, we'll, we'll go through those, but just know that those two are also a covenant of works, filled with grace and love, but a covenant of works, ultimately. Now, with that foundation, we are better in a better position to understand that this coven, what this covenant is and how it is better. So we're moving to the new covenant, okay, if you're following along on your outline. And let's think of this in light of Christmas, friends. We're doing this series through Hebrews right now because it's Christmas season. In a very real way, what Christmas represents, which is the birth of Christ Jesus, is the beginning of the replacement of the shadows and types with the reality that casted those shadows in the Old Covenant. It is the beginning of the replacement of the types with the anti-type that set forth those types in all of the Old Covenant. Last week, we considered that Jesus was the greater priest. The Old Testament priests were a type. They pointed to Christ. They served as a shadow of heavenly things. You don't have a Levitical priest to go to anymore, do you? You don't. In fact, the Scripture says that all who are in Christ are a a holy priesthood. The tabernacle and temple were a shadow. The official priesthood was a shadow. The animal sacrifices were a shadow. The feast and the dietary laws were a shadow And when Christ came, the shadows began to fall away. They started to to pass away. The the veil in the temple was torn, signifying access to God through Christ. 
And then when the temple is finally destroyed in 7 AD, that's it. No more shadows and types. The only way to worship God, the only way to come to God, is in the person of Christ. He is our atoning sacrifice. He is our high priest, our mediator. We go to worship through Him. He is our purity, our holiness. He's the one who sets us apart. So this has serious implications for worship, obviously. There's, I don't know the facts, but there are, I would say, probably hundreds of thousands, millions probably, of people who still practice Judaism. So people who still hold to external forms of worship. This is what this is about. It's saying worship is no longer external. In Christ, it is internal, it's personal. It's spiritual rather than ritualistic. It's the reason why Christianity is described as a missionary faith. That is the message of the New Testament, is to go out to all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. And the spiritual worship of the New Testament is to be brought into all cultures. It doesn't, the culture doesn't dictate the gospel. The gospel stays the same. You can bring it in to any culture. And whereas people can then you know, hear the gospel and be saved. The tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the feasts, the incense, all of that stuff, the, di- the dietary laws, everything caught up in the Old Covenant could not be transferred to other peoples and cultures. They're done away with. John Piper notes that Judaism was a come-and-see religion, whereas Christianity is a go-and-tell religion. So Christians worship in spirit and truth. It's internal It's personal. We could add ethical to that as well, lest anyone misunderstand what internal means and and think by that I mean private, because it's not private. We we gather, we worship together, and we spread it. So almost all the mandated ritualistic, formal, external aspects of worship life are gone, or they should be gone. They shouldn't be present in our worship. It's so simple now. What remains is spiritual, internal, joyful obedience and dependence on God in all that he is for us in Christ Jesus and the outworking of love in a, in a community that's been changed. Now, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews is going to teach us that this spiritual, internal, personal way of relating to God is, in fact, the fulfillment of the promised new covenant. That's what this text is about. So what God promised to do with the coming of Christ was established in the new covenant. So to see this, let's look again at verse 6. In Hebrews chapter 8. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. What he means by that, the old, he's saying that it is more excellent than the Old Testament priests who mediated through the sacrificial system. And then it says, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Better promises build a better covenant. They build a better covenant relationship between us and God, and this relationship is what Christ obtains and takes care of as a mediator. What those better promises are, we'll see here in just a minute. Verses 7 and 8 says, For if that first covenant, and again, this is a reference to the Mosaic Law, which is the republication of the covenant of works, but it also has in it the rest of the covenant of works as well, too, through all of its shadows and, and those types of things. And that first covenant, it lacked divine empowerment to keep it. So it goes on to say as well that if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, which is what Jesus brought. Jesus brought the second, the new. 
And this is in verse 8, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Now, notice carefully where the fault lies in this first covenant, and every covenant of works for that matter. Verse 7 says that the first covenant was not faultless. Two things. The old covenants were never meant to actually save a person. They were ultimately about anticipating and revealing the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant, which is what saves people in any age, in any dispensation. But then also in verse 8, it explains this by saying, for in finding fault with them, not in it, but with them. The fault of the first covenant was with them. Well, who was the them? And what was their fault? And what is this covenant anyway? That All those questions are answered in verse 8 to 9. So, it says, for finding fault with them here in verse 8, he says, and now he's quoting Jeremiah 31, 31, and on through, and on to, I think, 36. It says, the prophecy of, um, excuse me, it says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, says the Lord. So you see here, that the covenant in view that he's speaking about is the one that was made with Israel. It's made with them as they came out of Egypt, which I think it means that general time period, so probably a few months after they made it out of Egypt and they make it to Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law. And it was an arrangement of how God and man were to relate that they failed to keep. They did not continue in my covenant. And so God looked away from them and they suffered judgment again and again. Jeremiah and his prophecy, that's why I was saying earlier that this is not actually an exact quote. The verse um, 9 there is a little bit different in Jeremiah. Instead of saying, for they did not continue my covenant, he just says, for they broke my covenant. Remember, uh, Pastor Nick read Psalm 25 this morning for our call to worship. Verse 10 said, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For those who keep his covenant. But that's not what's happening here. They broke it. The faultiness of the first covenant with the Mosaic law was not that God gave bad commands. The commands are good. The commands are just. They are upright. They reveal to us what God is like, what, what we should be like if Adam didn't first sin. But people have bad hearts. There was divine forgiveness and patience in all of these other covenants. In Exodus 34, 6-7, we learned something about God, how he's his steadfast love, his faithfulness, how he is patient. And, and there was a call for faith in the first covenants. There were promises of God's love in the first covenant. Remember, it was, it was gracious of God to even give the covenants in the first place. But by and large, these things did not get into people's hearts. They did not get into the people's hearts. By and large, you would say that Israel was a, the nation, the people group, was a colossal failure in keeping the covenants of God. It was mainly external rather than internal. Obedience by willpower rather than by spirit-brought reliance and, and ritualistic rather than personal. So what was the flaw in the Old Covenant? What was wrong? What was the flaw? There are two ways to answer this question. One, from the human side, and then also from the God side. From the human side of the equation, the problem was unbelief in hard hearts. Uh, we read that all throughout Hebrews. 3, 3, 3 8, 15, 19, 4, 7. He warns us in this letter to not be like those people. And then from God's side of the problem was that God actually withheld the sovereign enablement of the Spirit. 
consider Deuteronomy 29.4. And this is Moses. He's speaking as he looks back at the time in the wilderness. He's reflecting on that. And what he says in Deuteronomy 29.4 is that, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. That, that was the ultimate reason as to why the Old Covenant was inadequate. God had lessons that he meant to teach in the Old Testament, and they involved enduring generations of stubbornness and rebellion and hard-heartedness until the time that the New Covenant should come. And that doesn't mean that people weren't saved in that covenant. Certainly they were. More on that in a moment. But now it, it comes with Jesus Christ, the mediator of the New Covenant, and it's by that covenant that Jesus mediates, by virtue of it, that even people in the Old Testament were saved. So let's read the description of it in verses 10 through 12. He says, For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for the Lord shall know me, and from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. It's God saying he'll do it, isn't it? I will do this. It's a covenant of grace. It's not do this and live. It's God saying, I'm going to do this. It's the sovereign enablement that comes in the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant. And there are four things about this covenant here. First, the will of God is going to be written on their hearts. Not just on stone tablets, not just on the pages of a Bible, the will and the law of God are going to be written on their hearts and their minds. Secondly, the new covenant will establish a relationship of ownership with God. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Thirdly, the new covenant is going to be intimate and personal. He says that everyone is going to know me. Everyone, people won't have to teach each other. All will know me from the least to the greatest. And fourthly, he will no longer remember our iniquities. Our sin won't be held against us. So we need God's will and law written on our hearts. You can see that the new covenant is exactly what we need if we're going to replace these shadows and these types that existed in the old covenant with the reality. It's God's will that we will be free from externalism and ritualism when it comes to worship so that our faith and that our corporate worship and our life can be radically spiritual and, and internal. And we need to do more than just remove the shadows of the Old Testament. We need for God to have to write his law on our hearts, his will on our hearts and our minds. We need for him to assert himself powerfully in our lives as our God. We need for him to not just make himself present before us, but to make himself knowable, that we may know him. That's the difference in Romans 2.15, by the way. It's not that the work of the law is written on the hearts of believers. It's the law itself. In Romans 2.15, everybody in the covenant of works, all those people who perish apart from the law, the work of the law is written on their hearts. But for those in the new covenant, the law itself is written on their hearts. It shows us who God is. It reveals to us who God is. And by grace and faith, we desire to keep those laws because we know how wonderful this God, this redeeming, saving God is. In the New Covenant, we know Him. Everyone in the New Covenant knows Him. He is our God. The promises of the New Covenant are better. And the reason for that is because the New Covenant is a covenant of grace. It's not a covenant of works. It's not a covenant which says to us, do this and live. 
It's a covenant in which Christ did it, and we live. It's a covenant in which God says, it's done. Remember, the, the old covenant was the command, do this and live. It was, it was a covenant of works. It was a righteous standard. And so God, in grace and, he, and in love, he sends Jesus. He doesn't do away with the law. He doesn't change the standard at all. In Galatians 4, we read that he sends Jesus in the fullness of time to be born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, friends, we're saved by works. Jesus' works. Do you see that? These two terms, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We're saved by works. They're married together. But it's not our works that saves us. It's Christ's works that saves us. And then we are the recipients of that through grace and faith, which God provides. The Spirit enables. The law isn't bad. Jesus fulfills it. This is why the new covenant is better. Let me explain it more through the text. It's a better covenant because the law is written on the hearts of God's people. That's the first thing he says. He tells us plainly there. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Now in the old covenant, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he had those ten commandments, the, the law of God, written by the finger of God. It was special revelation that God wrote himself and gave them. It's, it's the height of the old covenant. It's a, it's a glorious time. It's the hallmark of the Mosaic covenant when they received this written revelation from God. And it's repeated over and over in the Old Testament as well, this standard. And it's not bad in any way, but guess what the author of the Hebrews says in the New Covenant? In the New Covenant, God writes his law by his Spirit in our hearts. In other words, the new covenant is better in its moral transformation that it works in the people of God. Remember, the, on the stone, the law is outside of us. But when God saves us, he puts it inside of us, that we may desire it. So it transforms us. There's no justification without sanctification. Uh, sanctification comes after our justification. It's, it's, secondly, it's a better covenant because God has taken us to be his possession. It says, not, it says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And then in verse 10, it goes on to say, too, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is a, that is a big theme in, that announces the purpose of God in the Old Testament. And what is this purpose for you? It's the same. It's that you will be his possession and he's going to be your possession. It's for you to be his inheritance and for him to be your inheritance, as we read in Ephesians 1. A purpose of God in our salvation is that he would be ours and that we would be his. That we would be one with him. That he will be our God and we will be his people. And that is realized by the new and better covenant. That, by a side note, that means in a very specific way, Israel, the nation of Israel, wasn't the people of God. Because the new covenant is where the people of God are. So we might say that Israel was the people of God in a sense, that he was making covenants with them which anticipated and put, forward, put them forward to the revealing of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. Thirdly, it's a better covenant because knowing the Lord is more fully realized. Look what he goes on to say. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. This is referring to our experience of communion with God. To know is the language of intimacy in the Bible. So to know God is to love God. That's what J.I. Packer, or that's why J.I. Packer entitled his book 
knowing God. I would commend that book to you, brothers and sisters. This is a good book if you want to know God. He goes through almost all of his characteristics and his attributes that you might know this God. It's at the very heart of what a true Christian experience is about, and this new covenant realizes that in a way that was never realized in the old covenant. That's not to say that people in the Old Testament were not saved. Of course, we, we know that many of them were, but that was because they were saved by virtue of the new covenant. It is a better covenant because we have the actual forgiveness of sins. He goes on to say that in verse 12, I'll be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And so an actual forgiveness of sins, the new covenant is superior to the old. Let me ask you a question. How many sins were forgiven because of the sacrifice of bulls and goats? The answer is zero. Not a single one. No sin was forgiven by the sacrifices in the Old Testament. All the sins of the people of God in all ages are forgiven only by the blood of Jesus. What, what will the author of the letter to the Hebrews say in just a couple chapters? He'll say the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin. We sing a song, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That means Abraham's sin, Moses' sin, David's sin, Joshua's sin. All of it was never atoned for, or they were never saved by the sacrifice of these bulls. They were saved by Christ's blood and his future sacrifice, of which all those other sacrifices pointed to. They were forgiven by virtue of the new covenant. Look how final it is, brothers and sisters. This is one of the most amazing, I think, verses in this section from the prophecy of Jeremiah. The God who knows all things, the God who nothing is hidden from, he says that when it comes to our sin, I'll remember your sins no more. See how wonderful that is? Christmas was the beginning of this covenant in time, with the birth of Jesus, and then his life and death and resurrection. Without it, where would we be? We'd still be in the covenant of works. We'd be in Adam if Christ was never born into this world. This covenant existed before Jesus came to the world, but it, in time, during for what we celebrate Christmas for, is when it was being revealed and, and showing that the old covenant was being done away. And then there's one last verse of commentary that the author here in Hebrews mentions, verse 13. He says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What's he saying? He's saying, don't return to the Old Covenant. He's saying it's done. It's obsolete. Its promises are not as good. It worships through merely through shadows and types. But we have the real thing, church. We have Christ Jesus. Do you see how good we have it? This is, this is the draw that we have, that we should have, when we come to worship God to worship in spirit and truth. It's, it's Jesus, who he is, and what it is that he's done should be for us in the new covenant the draw for us to come and worship. Now it's Christmas time, and I, that's a great time of the year, but sadly it means that many professing Christian churches are doing all kinds of crazy things to draw people to the Lord. And so maybe their intentions are sincere. I get that. But there's nothing greater than Christ. There's nothing greater than the new covenant. That should be the draw. And so some professing churches are doing all kinds of crazy things to draw people in on the Lord's Day. I'm not speaking about midweek services or special events or something like that. I'm speaking of the Lord's Day. 
fine to have fun as a Christian. I, I have lots of fun. It's fine to do that. But the draw for us to worship God on the Lord's day is Jesus himself and the, New Test- and the, the things revealed in the New Covenant. But there are all kinds of things that are, that are quite sad. There are congregations that are doing special sermon series like Christmas at the Movies to draw people in. They are offering things like photo booths, carriage rides. They're bringing in like craft coffee suppliers, businesses from outside to come to the church so that they'll have this special fancy coffee there. They're, they're having people dress up like as movie characters, all to be a draw to people to come and worship. But that's so bad. That, that's, that's less than what we have. We have Jesus. He's way better than any of those things. You, you see, those things aren't even actually shadows and types, right? That's not going back to the Old Covenant. But what it is, it's just simply entertainment. And entertainment is external. Okay, the worship in the New Covenant is internal. And so even though those types of things aren't shadows and types, they're still external, which is what the mark of the Old Covenant was. And so church, I, I hope and I pray for you that Jesus would be the draw for you to worship. It's, he is the mediator of the better covenant. It has better promises. Our sins aren't remembered. His law is on our heart and our mind. He is our God and we are his people. It doesn't get any better than that. So this Christmas and every day, I would encourage you to remember the better covenant. True Christian joy and contentment is caught up and is found only in the covenant which Jesus mediates. And my hope for you this morning is that you will delight in God more for this blessing and every blessing that he gives to us in the new covenant, in the person of Christ. So let's pray. And I'll invite the band to come up after I'm praying. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for the new covenant, this covenant of grace, and how it is that you have revealed it to us in your word and all of the benefits that come with it, Lord, to know that we are your people and you are our God, that your law is on our heart, that it is showing us and giving us a desire to give you glory and to to do what is pleasing to you, that our sins aren't remembered, Lord, that there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. We praise you for every blessing in the new covenant. We thank you for the salvation, the redemption, the justification that you have given to us in your Son. So Jesus, we exalt you, and we ask Holy Spirit that you would help us to love you more, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.